Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash stuff. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our kick. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, joined by Brown Golf and Golfback CEO and President John Matthew Brown. John, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. And today we're going to delve into a number of issues. We have a great guest lined up, Jeff Pilch of T-Commerce. But before we get into that, we stumbled across an article that was written by Sean Dugan. is currently serving as the director of sales for Golfback, and he had a very interesting approach to analyzing statistics in a particular market. You can find this article on his personal LinkedIn page. John, you shared it. I shared it as well. In broad strokes, before we dive into it, what did you take away from Sean's article and what was it all about? The article is about the golf marketplace in a particular metropolitan area and the overall impact of barter by the collective of the golf courses that are trading tee times, which I think is a very unique way to look at the impact that third-party aggregators may be having in a particular marketplace. This isn't so much about the third-party aggregators and, and the way they do business. It's a lot more about what happens economically in a metropolitan area when there are these trade tee times available in bulk among all the golf courses and the impact is tremendous. So Sean is saying among, among other things in this article he's saying that what is transpiring is the equivalent to that of three new golf courses that are in direct competition with your bottom line are essentially opening up in your market every single day. This sounds like a serious detriment to business and so how is this taking place on a continual basis? Yeah, I think the way Sean wanted to portray what's happening in a marketplace is he looked at a, a market, the Philadelphia area market, and he found 50 golf courses that are trading tee times online uh, with third-party aggregators. And of those 50 golf courses, he actually did some calculations on one particular day, May 21st of 2022, and he found that 320 rounds were traded on that particular day. He's basically saying those 320 rounds are rounds that were purchased from third-party aggregators where the revenues went back to these big corporate infrastructures, not the golf courses themselves, and therefore those dollars left the marketplace. That's equivalent to three other golf courses being open in your marketplace, selling tee times, and diverting customers away from your product. So when you look at it in that sense, if someone asked anybody in any marketplace, how would you like three new golf courses opening up in your marketplace? We'd all say, we'd hate that. <laughs> you know. So it's, it's supply and demand, and it's these virtual golf courses uh, that are out there that are selling tee times, collecting revenues, diverting customers' attention. And when you look at it from a market standpoint, and you look at 50 golf courses trading 320 tee times on one particular day, and then you think about that in terms of every single day during a year, what is the market impact over the course of a year? It's millions and millions of dollars. And uh, I just think those dollars would be better served you know, down at the club level. The collective of continual barter tee times being booked, that information being collected by the third-party aggregators, those aggregators owning your lowest price, and having 50 golf courses trading 320 tee times on a particular day, May 21st of 2022 in this article, the impact is tremendous, and it's just the continued erosion and competitive displacement of our customer base. And as a golf marketplace, 
you have to look at it and say, you know, is this in the best interest of me personally and my club and the overall market? I mean, millions of dollars leaving a golf market is not good. And the only way you could justify the millions of dollars leaving a golf market is if you were making many more millions by the relationship you've entered into. And we know that's just not true through our work at Golf Back. You and Sean would agree that golfers are very smart. They're very intuitive. I am too smart. I am too smart. I am too smart. S-M-R-T. I mean S-M-A-R-T. And when they want to play, they will put the legwork in and shop around and find the best deal. We do not want to deprive them of the best deal. We simply want to put their hard-earned dollars in the hands of the local community, the local owner-operator, who will then disperse those funds to their staff, their team, etc. So how do we actually do a better job of that while still providing a great value to the player? We give great value in channels that are direct channels for the golf course, you know, channels that will allow us to collect our customer data, to own our lowest price in the marketplace, to build that direct relationship with the customer, to own 100% of that online green and car fee revenue. We can do that and give great value to the customer in a direct channel. Right now, under the model that exists, we are giving great value as far as our price point, to a third-party aggregator who is then building that relationship. We want to give great value. This isn't a, a customer question. We want to give tremendous value. I say give the customer more value in a direct channel than they might even be getting with the aggregate third parties right now because you get the opportunity to develop that relationship over the long term. You can really impact your business positively and stop competitive displacement. So if something isn't done about this competitive displacement, what are the potential end results here? I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. Is the end game here that potentially we're going to see courses go out of business? Is it that dire? Well, I think if you do the math on this article, right, you got 50 golf courses that are part of this analysis in the Philadelphia marketplace, 50 golf courses that are trading tee times, which is resulting in millions of dollars leaving that market. And that number could be three, four, it could be $5 million. It all depends on how many, what the sell-through rates are on those barter tee times. But over years and years and years, if millions of dollars leave a golf marketplace, and you're only talking about 50 golf courses, at some point, golf courses are going to have to make some decisions because there's less resources to go around. And yes, I think it ultimately leads to the closing of golf courses. So you've given us some awesome stats. I urge everybody to go check out the article. So if an owner operator is listening to this for the first time, they're having their eyes opened, what can they do about it? Can they contact Sean? Can they contact yourself? I would read the article first and foremost. Sean Dugan, S-E-A-N-D-U-G-G-A-N is on LinkedIn. He has Posted the article. I think it's a really good look from a golf marketplace economic standpoint. And it's something that we need to think about. Sean's contact information is there. I'm sure he's happy to go through the stats. I mean, these stats are out there. They're readily available if you know how to look for them and analyze. It's just important that golf courses really take ownership of building their own golf communities. And outsourcing that responsibility does lead to detrimental market impacts. Again, that's Sean Dugan, S. E-A-N-D-U-G-G-A-N. He's on LinkedIn. Definitely read the article. And if you're able to uh, reach out to Sean, he makes things very digestible, very easy to understand. Even I understood the article and I could see the glaring problem here. Um, we'll be right back. We're going to have Jeff Pilch from T-Commerce join us in just a minute. John, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, joined by the CEO and president of Brown Golf Management and Golf Back, John Brown. And John, today we are joined by an entrepreneur, a Massachusetts native, a demon deacon, 
a storyteller, a golf enthusiast, a contributing writer to The Motley Fool, which is a great publication if you haven't checked it out. He's also a CFA. He now serves as head of growth at T-Commerce. He's here today to regale the Golf Exposed podcast with a myriad of knowledge and experience. John, when you look this guy up on LinkedIn and you go to experience that tab, you have to hit see more like three times to see all the stuff that he does. It's pretty intense. This is Jeff Pilch. And how did you first come across this young man? Jeff and I met at a conference in New England, the New England Golf Owners Association Conference, I believe. We were both there. We were both speaking and we just got to talk. People are talking, talking about people. And I started to learn about their product, view it as an additional revenue channel for golf courses. So one thing led to another, and now we're going to be bringing in his product. And my partner here, he want to see that product. In two of our clubs, and I'm really excited about how that pairs with some of the marketing automation that we do internally in our company and, and just driving more revenue. So T-Commerce is known in broad strokes, and we'll get a lot deeper into it. I'm Peter Fool! T-Commerce is the online pro shop and more t-commerce brings the golf course pro shop online and utilizes modern technology and on-demand manufacturing let's welcome in jeff welcome to the show and thank you for being here hey guys thank you uh so much for having me uh honored to be here so in before we delve into a little bit of t-commerce i'm looking at all the stuff that you've accomplished over the years and a lot of it says present so you're still not only with t-commerce and making things happen in the industry but you're still involved in a lot of other things is that just the entrepreneurial spirit that being born and raised on the mean streets of massachusetts go socks <laughs> uh, i guess yeah uh i guess linkedin's more of a facade than anything else but um uh but yeah like i'm very much full-time t-commerce i've always been entrepreneurial my dad started a business like right before i was born and kind of grew up in that have always kind of like been meeting and working with startups in Boston. Hey, that's some wicked hot chowder. And finally came across one that intersected golf and was able to convince Ben, the founder, to let me join. Um, so kind of like thrilled to, to be doing this. And thank you for having me again. A lot of intuition, a lot of innovative things going on at T-Commerce. John, it's very in line with a lot of your ideology about the industry. So what attracted you to this platform in particular? It was a different way of thinking. And, and I think that's ultimately in this business, I like seeing new ideas, especially ideas that take the onus of responsibility off the golf operator themselves. What they put together at T-Commerce has done that. Do you want to talk just a little bit about the product, Jeff, and just how you take some of the, the responsibilities off the golf operator, but you can support them with your online stores? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, our mission really is to help golf courses and country clubs sell branded merchandise and apparel online without having to, you know, carry and invest in more inventory or do the the behind the scenes work. Like a, an actual e-commerce site that very much like matches the look and feel of the existing courses or club site. We're very much behind the scenes helping to essentially allow golf courses to sell branded apparel and drive more revenue without, without having to do all of the annoying pain in the butt work associated with traditional like e-commerce business. So as a golf operator, uh, if I'm working with T-commerce, I basically am giving you access to our logos, to our brand, and then you're holding the inventory, shipping the inventory. How, what is the setup? Yeah, exactly. We have it set up where like on the on the site, you can have actually like up to four different like logo options for the course. 
and it's like a digital rep representation of the product, whether it's like a hat. Give me your hat. It's a crown. Give me your hat. Or a, a hoodie or a quarter zip or a polo. Um, yeah, exactly. When somebody orders something, we handle the transaction as if it's coming, like as if the member, the golfer is buying it from the course. We are literally decorating it, whether that's embroidery or like printing on a t-shirt on behalf of the course um, and shipping it out directly to the golfer or customer on the course's behalf. And what kind of merchandise is available through your platform? Obviously you're using the logo from the course, you're selling merchandise, but what can customers buy? Yeah. So, I mean, that's constantly growing as we land more courses, sort of your standard golf stuff. So polos, quarter zips, hats. We st recently started carrying golf, like hoodies, but actually a lot of what we sell, like close to half of it is more like lifestyle wear. So like hoodies, t-shirts, that sort of stuff where it's, it's a way for golfers and like members of a club, maybe who are really invested in the in the club's brand or the course's brand, but maybe you want to wear something off of the course, including like we do bags and like tumblers and all that sort of stuff as well. So I'm looking at tcommerce.shop, which I urge all of you to go check out. Right across the top, it says no inventory, no work, no risk. I'm sure the owner operator loves to hear the word no risk or the term no risk. I ask John this all the time with golf back. Some of the owner operators, with all due respect, are not as forward thinking as some of the people in the industry. That's just a fact. Any apprehension to get a owner operator on board at first? Was it hard initially to convince them why this is a viable option? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. So frankly, the way to your point, the way we sort of think about it is there's there's so many golf courses in the United States. And even though like some are slower to adopt, there are some that like just get it instantly. Those are the folks we really want to focus on working with first because it doesn't necessarily make sense for us to like force feed an online shop down a course's throat if they aren't going to participate in potentially marketing it. So like we've learned along the way that, you know, you'll get some sales if you make a tab in the on the website that says, you know, shop online or online shop. But the way you really are able to drive meaningful revenue out of an online shop like this is through marketing it effectively, whether that's like email marketing or doing like limited edition drops or giveaways or like special deals for members and creatively marketing it as like kind of an amenity. I don't know if that answers your question, but a lot of it is kind of like just focusing on the people that kind of like the courses that get it and are excited about it. To your point, there there absolutely is pushback in terms of more so like, oh, like my target demographic, like wouldn't shop online or like my members wouldn't buy like that expensive sort of stuff. It's like a lot of it we're seeing is like word of mouth is spreading and it is what we're excited about. How has the adoption been so far in the marketplace? Uh, I mean, we've grown very quickly since the end of last year. So the first two years, Ben, the founder, was really working on building a product that could scale well and was like something that the the golf courses like would use and, and wanted as opposed to like building something before um, it was in the hands of the golf courses. And we're, we're very excited. We're going to hit a uh, hundred stores soon, um, have some really good partnerships um, that we'll be announcing and it's been really fun to kind of see word of mouth spread here 
in and around Boston. No, Maki Maki and the Funky Bunch, now that's a good band. You know what band I love more? Bastin. But we're, we're nationwide. And it'll be fun to kind of see the same sort of like word of mouth spread in other pockets of the country. Because as you know, John, like golf course owners and pros talk to each other all the time. So that's like a huge part of it. Jeff, I want to ask you a question that pertains to what you do professionally with e-commerce, but outside of e-commerce as well. So on the website, there's a spot where there's blogs. And I know that you contribute to the Motley Fool. And I've seen a lot of your articles. You do things about putting drills and just content-driven marketing. For T-commerce and for any outside endeavor or anybody who's a young entrepreneur listening to the show, I always think that content-driven marketing is the wave of the future and extremely important. I wouldn't have a job if it wasn't. So um, <laughs> how do you feel, how important do you feel it is to, to market with content that people can actually digest as opposed to hitting them over the head with, you know, sales techniques? Get back in there at once and sell, sell. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I've, I've only been writing for maybe like a few years here. I really started doing this type, that type of stuff you alluded to as a way to like learn more and then kind of like write it and then present it. It's like helped me kind of like process things and learn things. But like, to your point, a lot of our blog content at T-Commerce is about like, how do we help golf courses, even if they don't use us? Like, how do we help them be more successful or how do we help them think about potentially launching an online shop down the road? Because like, even if they don't use us, it's good just generally for the industry to be like moving in that direction. And like, if they end up trying it and they struggle, like, who do you think they're going to think of to reach out to? So we, we think of it very much like playing, playing the long game. Um, and at the same time, like if you have this content it can be a good way to kind of like remind people that you're there in like long-term email marketing around like if somebody's not necessarily like looking right now, you can kind of like keep that. It's a way to like kind of activate them long-term in an email list. Um, and then they'll always, you'll sort of always be top of mind. Jeff, what would you say to the golf operator that says, I don't want to promote an online store because it will take sales away from my shop. What would you say to that particular person? Yeah, I, I hear that question every day. <laughs> so our mission is not to replace the online shop, it, or sorry, the physical shop. It's to be a supplement of the physical retail location. Because like, as you know, a physical shop only has so much square footage. And the goal there is to optimize revenue and turn inventory as quickly as possible. So we want to help supplement that and maybe help the pro or the owner learn what they should stock on their shelves that will turn the fastest so they can, you know, maximize the revenue of their square foot there. And then maybe we help offer more products or help them with different sizing or like in a physical shop, like it's, it's nearly impossible to do like limited edition type logos and or limited edition collections. So like, for example, we just did one for St. Patrick's day with a few clubs where Maybe they sold 25 different items, but different types of products. Like there's no way that they could stock that on their shelves without, you know, having to eat some of that or invest a lot up front. So we really think of it as additive as opposed to like replacing. John, what's your response to Jeff's, to Jeff's response? Do you think that online sales affect anything at a club level? 
I do not. I think online sales are a bolt-on revenue stream. And if you market correctly, it's just additional revenue. Most golf shops, the locations that they exist, people are buying things out of those golf shops because they're playing the course that day. An online strategy is about reaching out to customers that aren't on your property. So I totally agree with you, Jeff, that it's a, it's a additional revenue stream. And if you're scared of, of pushing folks online, I think you're missing an opportunity. And I guess, John, the only thing I'll add to that too is part of what we help do is like at the end of the season, whether that's in the north, it's in the winter when you shut down or in this, you know, and down in Florida when it's like really hot out, like we can help you through the online shop, like unload some of that inventory that might be um, sitting there. So like we also want to be a resource in helping you like maximize um, that side of the business as well. So you must have uh, some great information just about Christmas sales. I'm assuming you're in the Northeast, you're in New England. You really just got to try to lobster. Northeast New England, obviously very cold. People aren't coming to the golf course. I'm sure you've driven some online sales during Christmas time. Yeah, Christmas was pretty crazy for us in a good way. Um, we onboarded a handful of courses just ahead of that. We, I mean, we charge a monthly fee is how our business model works. And then a course gets a percentage of the sales. And like every course that came on right before Christmas, like literally made their, paid back their year's worth of monthly fee in like the two weeks ahead of Christmas. It's exciting to be able to help clubs generate that revenue when they're like, doors were literally closed and they had nothing to sell in their physical shop. Um, so yeah, Christmas is like a huge part of it. So Jeff, the golf backs of the world, the T-commerce of the world, it's not like there's decades and decades of research to go back and, and, and look at what you did wrong and what you did right. This is still a relatively new uncharted territory. So in this endeavor, what is the biggest thing that you learned or, or took away from just the process of taking an idea and seeing it come to fruition? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, like one of the fun things about this is that we're able to be like really quick and nimble and like test things out and if they don't work move on to something else and if something does work and the customers are and the courses are really happy about it like really lean into it uh one thing our founder always talks about is that he thought that having to embed the store into the existing courses website as opposed to like making it be a subdomain off of the existing site was like a huge deal breaker, but it turned out that like courses didn't really care about that. And that opened up a lot of possibilities and functionality for us to make the user experience shopping wise better. Our learning from that is like never assume anything if you can test it and ask questions about it. So yeah, that's one of the really fun things about like working in a uh, early stage company is in general, it's like being able to hear customer feedback and act on it immediately. Well, Jeff, you and T-Commerce have a big presence online. So much Obviously, there's the company website, but where can people find you and, and the company on the web and on social media, things of that nature? T-Commerce.shop, Instagram, also T-Commerce.shop. Um, and if you're, a, we connect with quite a few folks on LinkedIn, um, you can just find us by searching T-Commerce. Um, that's sort of where we're at. And feel free to reach out to me uh, via email, if you'd like to Jeff at tcommerceco.com. Well, Jeff, I'd be remiss not to ask a Massachusetts native on a scale of one to 10, when Brady took his talents down South, how upset were you on a scale of one to 10? Let's go! Deeply like 11. Uh, and we just onboarded like a couple of courses in Tampa and it just like, 
brings me back every time. So thanks for the reminder again. As probably the biggest Brady fan in the on the planet, I, I empathize. But I'm here in Pennsylvania where we have, you know, the Eagles and the Steelers. So I suffer mightily as well. <laughs> My uh, in-laws are big Steelers fans. And Gross. I've, I've won that one recently quite a bit. <laughs> Well, I'm the Washington something. I don't even know what our team name is. <laughs> yeah, I, don't even know I guess I'm a Commanders fan this year. So there you, you go. Know. Good luck. <laughs> Great having you on, Jeff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. John, we're getting ready to ride off into the sunset. This will be episode 23 at the time of this release. And we have about two seasons in the book. Either way, 23 episodes, great guests, great topics. Urge everybody to go back and listen to some of the previous episodes. They're not really time-stamped, so the knowledge that we learn each time stands the test of time. John, has been great so far. We will be back in the fall, and when we come back, we're going to have some big, big news. Can't wait to join you in the fall, Jordan. Start season three up on the Golf Exposed podcast. Had a ton of fun doing this for two seasons so far and uh, look to continue to just move it forward, keep uh, giving great knowledge to the marketplace, having great guests. I love the guests that we've had on this season. There's some really exciting things happening with Brown Golf and with Golf Back, and we'll look forward to just communicating some some new things in the fall. I don't want to say that any episode was our particular favorite, but some popular ones, if you want to go back and listen to it, Eight Ways to Improve Your Golf Operation, great episode, a lot of great feedback. And my, I think I, if I had to lean one way, one of my personal favorites for sure, Seven Steps to Leaving Golf Now. Um, anytime you get on that uh, tangent, I thoroughly enjoy it. Well, those happen to be our most downloaded episodes as well. So I think the audience enjoys it. So great episodes. I, I agree with you. I think you can go back and listen to some of the older episodes and, they, and they're not time sensitive. Go ahead and absorb it over this little hiatus that we're going to have over the summertime. And we'll be back in September. And before we ride off into that sunset, John, I do want to ask you, I'd be remiss not to because it's pretty big news. Dustin Johnson recently put a pen to paper here and signed on for 125 mil with the live commonly known as the South Saudi Golf League. What kind of impact do you think something like this will have um, in the PGA as well as the Live? Well, it's going to shake things up without a doubt. I will be very interested to see over the summertime, the first four or five events will happen over the summertime before we're back, you know, what transpires. Obviously, the PGA Tour needs to do what they need to do and, and draw their lines and try to protect their customer base, their players, and their sponsors. But at $125 million for Dustin Johnson, it's hard to say that a 37-year-old golfer shouldn't look at that money and, and say, you know what, I think I'll give that a shot. And not only that, but some of the other players that are that have signed on to the, uh, to the live, I mean, they're getting big entrance fees. I know one player that, you know, is kind of muddling around the 125 spot level on the PGA Tour, it, you know, received $10 million and, and now he's playing for $25 million purses. It's hard to say that's a bad decision when you're sort of on the back end of your career. So it'll be very interesting to see what transpires. I think at its root, you know, the live probably is a bit of sports washing and you can look up that term and so I think everyone's going to kind of have a little bit of trouble with that but overall it's another place to play golf make quality money I think it's probably good for the global golf marketplace and exposure and we'll see what happens with the PGA Tour. John thank you for your time as always we'll be back in the fall and we can't wait. Look forward to it thanks Jordan.